Complexity is job security. Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. On today's episode, you get to hear my discussion with Rick Ferry, an analyst and financial advisor for over 30 years and the author of several books, including The Power of Passive Investing and All About Asset Allocation, the main focus of my inquiry this time around. Rick's career is itself a history of the investment management industry with one notable exception. He tended to be years, if not decades, ahead of the pack on where the profession, the products, and the services needed to go. And you'll notice, with only an hour to tap into Rick's brain, there were dozens of more interesting questions I could have asked a guy like Rick, but I displayed a certain obsession with his current business model. And upon reflection, I think it's because I figured out, after listening to Rick's story, if you start with Rick's simple framework for the asset allocation, and then work backwards to what your business model looks like, you would do it the way Rick is doing it now. Conversely, if you just say, I'm going to start a business model, I'm going to create a registered investment advisor, and then start working towards your asset allocation framework, you actually end up in a different place. Anyway, I find that interesting to contemplate. Give a listen and see if by the end you don't pick up on what I'm talking about. And now, my discussion with Rick Ferry. My, my interest in the podcast is very much for financial advisors, wealth managers, or sophisticated do-it-yourselfers. And that's what I've tried to focus on. And the asset allocation process is, is interesting to me, and we'll, we'll get into it. But first, your, yourself, you went to University of Rhode Island. Are you from the Northeast? I was born and raised in Rhode Island. And when I graduated from high school, I went to the University of Rhode Island for business administration. That's what it was called back then. And uh, ended up uh, getting a degree in business, an uh, undergraduate degree in business administration with a minor in entrepreneurial studies. Okay. And what was your first introduction to the investment advisory business? Did you work somewhere else before founding Portfolio Solutions? Yeah. When I finished college and I graduated, it was 19... 80. And I don't know if you recall what was going on in 1980, but we had like 15% interest rates and 12% unemployment. Uh, you couldn't get a job at a shoe store if you wanted to. So, uh, you know, I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I was always interested in the military and going into the military. I was an Eagle Scout back in the day and uh, decided to go into the Marine Corps. So I went into the Marine Corps and they sent me to flight school and I ended up flying fighter jets for most of the 1980s. And then when I got off of active duty in 1988, I decided to go back to business. The environment had gotten a little better and I decided to go into uh, the brokerage industry or the you know Wall Street. And I got a job as a broker at Keter Peabody, which was an old line brokerage firm, if you recall. Uh, and I worked there for uh, five years and then went over to Smith Barney and worked at Smith Barney for five years. And then I started my own uh, investment advisor company at the, after that. Uh, and I kept that company until uh, about 2017. Uh, and now I sold that company and now I'm doing just independent consulting. So you found Portfolio Solutions. You were coming from the brokerage world. During those years, how were you allocating capital? Were you using active managers? The, the index world hadn't evolved nearly to the extent it is now. What, what were well, you doing sure. at, so the, when at I, that time? So when I went into the brokerage industry in 1988, you know, they trained you, but their training was like boiler room training, quite frankly, <laughs> boot camp. 
broker boot camp. And it was all, you know, sell this, sell that, and don't worry about it. Just just do what we tell you to do, uh, which didn't suit me. And I wasn't going to just do that. Uh, what I One thing I realized is that a lot of the people who were the analysts and the money managers who were managing mutual funds and other pots of money were financial analysts. So I said, this is something that I need to learn how to do. So I spent the next three years studying for the Charter Financial Analyst designation. And it took three years, but I mean, I passed all the exams and became a Charter Financial Analyst. And then I switched jobs, went over to Smith Barney and uh, started working on my Master's of Science in Finance, which was a nice compliment to the CFA Charter. And uh, it was during that time, and I was doing this, by the way, all the whole time to try to figure out how to beat the market, how to figure out how to beat the market, how to pick people, pick people, pick managers who are going to beat the market. So in order for me to be able to pick somebody who I thought could beat the market, I needed to be them. I needed to understand, you know, what they knew. And that's why doing the CFA charter and uh, getting my master's of science and finance was a good understanding, good background in all of that. But you know, I was very unsuccessful at doing it. All the managers that I chose who I thought were good, uh, were, you know, it was a random event. Uh, I began to realize that you know, some, some did okay, some did most did most not did not do okay. Uh, when I tried to pick stocks, some stocks did okay, most did not do okay. I mean, it was very random, very, very di- difficult. And um, you couldn't jump on the, the bandwagon of a manager that was doing well because just about the time you jumped on the bandwagon was about the time it was the peak and you fell off I'm just like everybody else did. I mean, you could take Kathy Wood with ARC and uh, Innovation Fund. You could see this repeated over and over and over again, you know, for, for decades with different managers. And she's just the latest one. So I realized that it's, this is not working. I'm not, I'm not getting, I'm not being successful at, at doing this. I, mean, I was really perplexed and clients weren't doing well. And I wasn't, I was very depressed. And, and I, I was sitting at a, a CFA conference in 1996. And this fellow by the name of Jack Bogle was the keynote speaker. And I had heard of the name. He was the founder of the Vanguard uh, Mutual Funds and the Vanguard Company. And uh, he had just retired because of health reasons. And uh, he was out now uh, talking and he was uh, giving this uh, keynote lecture and he was just pounding the active management side. I mean, he was just telling it like it was. And uh, I said, wow, this, this guy seems to know something. I mean, he kind of seeing the same thing that I was seeing. And he wrote a book called Bogle on Mutual Funds. He wrote it back in 1994. So I got a hold of his book in around October, around uh, Halloween. Uh, when my children were going through a house of horrors and you hear chainsaws in the background and they're screaming, yelling, I was sitting in my car waiting for them to finish this house of horrors one evening. And I was reading Bogle on mutual funds. And I started screaming myself because this guy got into my head. I mean, he was telling it exactly like it was in that book. It is exactly what I was seeing, exactly what I was feeling. But he went one step further and he was able to explain why things are the way they are. And I realized I had an epiphany. I call it the aha moment where, ah, this is what I should be doing. Forget about going out trying to beat the market, just be the market. And that's all you need to do. So that's what I sort of dedicated my career to since then. And and that was a specific question was talking about the moment you became, and I've practiced pronouncing this correctly. It's Boglehead, correct? Correct. Boglehead. Well, see, the Bogleheads didn't exist back then, uh, but the Boglehead phrase was sort of developed in the uh, early 2000s um, 
And now it's a registered trademark of the John C. Bogle Center for Financial Literacy. And everything Boglehead out there, there's a zillion different things that are Bogleheads podcasts and we're doing, we're starting uh, uh, Twitter spaces, Bogleheads. We have Facebook, we have Bogleheads.org forum. We've got Bogleheads conferences. I mean, we've got millions of Bogleheads all over the world now. And so it's fascinating. You were experiencing in real time what you just documented for us verbally, what academics have now written about for years in terms of the infrequency with which a manager, active manager beats their index compounded by the difficulty of you even figuring out who they're going to be for the next 10 years. It's all well-documented. It's just, it's just too logical uh, to avoid. And that was over 20 years ago. And I think it was just yesterday or the day before, I think it was yesterday on Twitter, you, you shared a story that you had did a a search for (laughs) local financial advisors. And the question is, and I'd already had this down when I saw that post, what are the models you're still seeing out there? Uh, it, I've been shocked myself in researching this industry, the number of financial advisors, most of them former stockbrokers who are still trying to pick stocks. They've got covered call strategies and they're just so, so, so active in what they do. When any one of them, even if they're taking a management fee, could do from an asset allocation perspective, what you're doing as a consultant, but I don't think many of them do. What 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 do you see in the industry and and the movement in the way this service is provided? So there's been an evolution of how advisors create portfolios. It used to be when I entered the industry back in the 1980s, you put together a portfolio of stocks. You you were a you were the money manager. That's what you did as a broker. You pick the stocks. You pick the bonds. You might have had a few mutual funds, but the mutual funds were basically for the people who didn't really have much money. If they had $10,000, $15,000, you put them in some mutual funds. But the people who have any substance, uh, you're going to go out and you're going to pick individual securities. That changed in the 1990s more towards picking managers who are going to manage the client's money. So now you go out and you do a wrap fee. And the wrap fees are like 3% or something, but you're going to pick managers and they're going to manage the money and you're going to go out and become an asset gatherer. And that morphed a little bit later on into creating a uh, portfolio of actively managed funds. So now you're going to create as part of this, uh, picking the managers that are going to outperform. You're trying to figure out through using screens or whatever it is you're using past performance or whatever. You're going to try to pick managers or, or mutual funds that are going to beat their benchmarks. And so uh, you go put a portfolio together like that. Well, that's about where I was in 1996 when I realized that, well, if I'm going to do that, I'll just use index funds because that's the one that's going to outperform. But of course, working in the brokerage industry, that didn't uh, jive very well with the goals of, uh, of the company I was working for. But I mean, that was the evolution. It took a while for the advisor industry to get, get off of that. And it was around, I call it the late 2000s, maybe 2010 or so, maybe 10 years ago, advisors finally started coming around to, hey, at least part of the portfolio should be in index funds. And because now we have exchange traded funds, ETFs available at brokerage firms, the advisors or the brokers at the brokerage firms can start using ETFs as the core of their portfolio. And they started doing this thing called core and satellite. I'd like to say core and explore, but I think that's been trademarked by Schwab, but that's what it would kind of call core and explore. So, hey, we're gonna have a core position in the 
areas that it's really difficult to beat the market, like large cap U.S. stocks. But there are other sectors of the market where it's you know it's, it's less efficient, and we can still pick managers that are going to outperform. Okay, there was no academic evidence whatsoever to support that, but that's what they said. They said it because they didn't want to give up that aspect or that element of we can outperform. So they uh, they did this core and explore. Now at this point, I think that there's still advisors that are doing that, but I think more and more money is just going into broad market index funds, although slice and dice. Uh, advisors who are managing portfolios really risk losing assets, losing clients if they make things too simple for their clients. So even though it might be to the client's advantage, you just put them into a balanced index fund, one fund and be done. I and mean, the clients will probably do just great. Uh, but the advisor who gets paid AUM fees is not going to do that. Why? Because that creates job insecurity. Complexity is job security in the advisor industry. So they'll take a total U.S. stock market index fund and slice it up into six different pieces. A large cap U.S. growth, a large cap U.S. value, a mid cap U.S. growth, a mid cap U.S. value, a small cap U.S. growth, a small cap U.S. value. Now you have six funds that really is just one fund, but you made it six. Very complicated, although it's just the performance is just the total market. You do the same thing with international. You have Europe, you have Pacific, you have emerging markets, uh, you divide it up. So now you have nine funds and then you take the bond market and you could divide it up maybe into four or five funds. And you end up with a portfolio of 15 funds, complicated enough so that the clients look at it and go, wow, there's a lot of stuff here. But in reality, all you really have is a total US stock fund, a total international fund, and a total bond fund. But you can't do that as an advisor because you won't get paid. Clients will say, what do I need you for? And they'll leave you. So you have to make it more complicated. And that's, I think, where we are today. You know, uh, Complexity is job security. Get the return of the markets by doing slice and dice, where you put it all back together, you have the return of the markets minus the advisor fee, but do it in a complicated enough way where the clients will say, that's why I have you. That's why I need you because this is too complicated. One more question about your business model. So then you do the asset allocation as a consultant and you present it to the client and they can either choose to do it or not? Yeah. So right now, for example, so the evolution of me is the all about asset allocation book was the model of a little bit of slice and dice. I think I ended up there with nine, 10, 11, 12 funds. So it wasn't too bad slice and dice. Uh, when I was an advisor, that's what we followed. We followed what was in that book. I actually wrote that book based on the research that I did to create portfolios for my own clients. And these were the portfolios that we were using at the company that I owned. Since then, it has become simpler. In other words, in the book, I said, you know, have a European position, have a uh, Pacific Rim position and have an emerging markets position. Well, now I'm saying just have a total international fund. Don't bother with slicing and dicing. Same thing on the uh, U.S. equity side. It's like, look, just have a total stock market fund. Don't bother doing large cap, mid cap, small cap. And, and so now you have a total stock market U.S., a total stock market international. And if you want something else, if you want a little bit extra in your portfolio, a little frosting on the cake, if you will, you could do a small cap value fund, index fund. Uh, you could also add a real estate fund. So they're like the four equity funds. After that, it's diminishing returns on everything. And so my, my portfolios now that I create for clients, the equity side rarely 
Well, have 50% of the time, they only have two funds, the total stock market and the total international. The rest of the time, they might add an element of small cap value and real estate uh, to give it a little uh, frosting uh, or icing on the cake, if you will. But that's it. So it's a simplified version, if you will, of all about asset allocation. And on the bond side, it's the same thing, just generally a total bond market. But if you want a little bit more than that, you can add a little bit of high yield. You could add some treasury inflation protected securities. You can even add some preferred stock if you wanted to that. All of those are mutually exclusive. So you could do that on the fixed income side. But you know, do you need to? No, probably not. If you really wanted to be simple, you know, a three fund portfolio, total stock, total international, total bond is just fine. And that's what I love about the book is conceptually the framework is you start with the John Bogle three fund portfolio and contemplate if you're going to take money out and add it to something else, here are some options, but that's, yeah. that's the core. And speaking of the, before I get into that um, and factors, talking about the bond fund, you think about this as a, I'll call it a percentage allocation asset allocation framework, what some people refer to as the 60-40 or the numbers could be 70-30, as opposed to a fixed income bond. And I'm using, let's use the perspective because you get into life cycles later in the book. Uh, let's pretend I'm just about to retire and I come to you. It, the, the other alternative is to carve out a bond ladder for a certain number of years, fixed yep. income and cash flow, and then an at-risk portfolio sure. versus a 60-40. How did you decide on the, the model you use and the way you think about it? Well, it depends on each client. I mean, here, here, let me talk about the difference between philosophy and strategy. There's two different things. And this, by the way, this is in a, a new book that I'm working on called A Few Good Funds, as a matter of fact, which is sort of an addition. It's the next iteration of this. It's simplification of what I've been doing in the past. But there's, there's a philosophy. The philosophy is the John Bogle philosophy. If you're going to invest do it low cost, tax efficient, be broadly diversified, don't time the markets, you know, put the portfolio together between your fixed income and your, uh, your growth based on, you know, what your ability is to take risk and your need to take risk is. So there's really simple concepts that apply to everybody, all investors. If I go to a Bogleheads conference and I say, how many of you believe in those principles? Everybody raises their hand. That's because we all believe in the same philosophy of how to do it. Now, strategy is not how to do it. Strategy is how you do it. How do you do it? Now, you might do a one to five year bond ladder using CDs and a couple of total stock market, a total international fund. That might be how you do it. Maybe your 401k doesn't have the funds that you need. So you might put some of this portfolio in the 401k uh, in funds that are available over there. And then in your uh, Roth account, you might put some equity funds that are not available in your 401k and then your taxable account, something else. So my point is that you're going to follow the philosophy with all of this, but the strategy that you are personally going to use is dependent upon you and your situation, your particular tolerance or need to take risk, your tax situation what cash flows you're going to need. And there, no one is the same. Everybody, everybody is different. Now, we all have the same markets that we're investing in. We have the same taxes we have to pay. Social Security is the same. Medicare Irma is the same. I mean, there's a lot of things the same about all of us. But how you structure this, the, you, know, you, you know the pieces of the puzzle, but how you put your puzzle together for you is going to be very unique to you. So if you 
were a client and you said, well, this is the way I think I want to do it. I've got X amount of money, $5 million. I think I'm going to be spending $500,000 over the next uh, 10 years. Plus I'll get social security. I want to do a one to 10 year bond ladder uh, with that 500,000 and take the rest of the money and just put it all into equity index funds. I'll say, that's great. That's perfect. As long as it's not, not as, as long as you're not over allocating, as long as you're not getting in over your head where you're going to do something behaviorally bad if the market goes down, as long as you can stay the course, as John Bogle would say, that's perfectly fine. So again, what strategy works for you may not be the same strategy that works for somebody else, but it works for you. So this is what I try to do with individuals. I try to help them figure out what's, what's a good strategy for them. Some people need a lot of help with this. And I have to tell you, some people come to me and they are just, it's like portfolio, beautiful magazine. I mean, they've got it all figured out. They've read all the books. They've been on all the websites. They've, they've done everything. And it is just almost eye-watering, like, wow. I mean, and then I say, where did you learn all this? And, and sometimes it's kind of gratifying. They say, well, I learned some of it from you. But a lot of it they learned from Bogleheads and John Bogle and, and everything else. And they, they just spent a lot of time working on this. And everybody comes to the same conclusion. They come to the same result. In other words, if you do it right, you're going to come to the same result. Um, your portfolio is going to look as the same way I would have created it. It's going to look that way uh, because it naturally falls that direction. So if you only have an S&P 500 index fund in your 401k and everything else are high cost, actively managed funds, then the only fund, the only equity fund you're going to have in your 401k is the S&P 500, and you're not going to have anything else. You'll put everything else somewhere else. And that's how these, the, the portfolio is created. My four sons, my oldest son graduated college last year and is working, and he sent me his 401k allocation options. And I was stunned, Rick, at the, the choices they were giving you and the choices they weren't giving you. And it <laughs> yeah. was a fair bit of work trying to optimize. Yep. Now, granted, he's 23 years old, so it shouldn't be that complicated, but they still had a few actively managed funds that were just really underperforming. I'm trying to, I'm choosing my words carefully to be polite. I'm, <laughs> I'm not naming names. And then you wanted like a, an EFA or something simple or an EEM index fund for emerging markets or developed international, and it wasn't there. Not there. Uh, not there. It, it wasn't there. It was... Um, it was shocking. And so now the fun part, I'll, I'll skip the, I, I love the discussion, by the way, that you had about risk because the name of this podcast is Kick the Dogma. And while I 100% agree, as we started off this discussion talking about that very, you know, 10% maybe of managers add value worth their fees and uh, you or me or an individual have no track record of being able to pick who those are in advance. So I subscribe to the passive investing strategy, but I think some wealth managers and active fund managers do themselves a disservice when they take parts of modern financial theory, like the definition of risk is short-term standard deviation and try to manage to it. Whereas I'm sure a client comes to you and they say, Hey, my, uh, my aunt Gloria just left me a hundred thousand dollars. She died and and I'm going to need it in 18 to 24 months to pay for my kids' tuition. Do I put it in the stock market? You're going to say no. You know, it's not. I don't know what the market's going to do 12, 24 months from now. <laughs> but if they say I don't need it for five or 10 years, you know, time horizon matters. And uh, so, what you defined, how you defined risk in the first instance was permanent loss of capital that they you lose money to the individual. That's what matters. And I think, I don't know if you said this uh, in the book, or I know it's 
My second risk is failing to meet your return objectives. You know, ending up 25 years down the road and going, well, crap, I didn't, um, uh, I didn't get there. But how, when you talk about volatility versus risk, um, what do you say to a, a new client? Well, first of all, let me define a client to me, okay? Because I'm, I'm a little different than, I don't have ongoing contracts with clients. I mean, most of the people come to me and it's a one-time financial review that ends with a portfolio review. So I say financial review because I, to, to describe what I do is I'll find out from you, uh, where do you work? What's your career look like? How much are you making? What's your tax base? You know, uh, you covered with healthcare insurance. Uh, you know, did you do your estate planning? Uh, do you have life insurance to cover your uh, working capital? Uh, um, it's gonna be your human capital uh, risk there. And, and I, you know, we go over the basic things. You have children, have you saved for your children's education? How are you saved for them? When are they gonna go to school? Do you have any special needs? Do you have parents who need your help or siblings that need your help? Um, how much do you spend? Uh, are you going to, you know, when do, would you like to retire? How much are you saving? How much do you have? Where is it? What kind of accounts are it in? What are the different types of accounts? Tax deferred, tax free, taxable, or maybe there's some annuity money in there as well. And so I get, I start out with the whole big picture. And I mean, who are you? Who is your family? Where are you trying to go? What do you need? How much do you need? And so forth to, to get an idea and I'd be able to put myself in your shoes. I have to do this before I can even look at the investment portfolio. I, I, I just, I need to, I need to understand who you are and I need to understand what you want and what you want this money to do for you before I can even advise you in any way uh, on, on the portfolio. And once I have that, then I can say, okay, so now I got a, I got a good picture of your situation and what you want and what you want to do and maybe who you want to leave the money to and how much perhaps you want to leave it. Uh, in the future. So I've got all of this. And maybe you want to be philanthropic even before you die. All of that. I've got it all here. It's all written down. Now, let's go to the investment portfolio to see if it is aligned with what it is you're trying to do. Is it aligned with what you're trying to do? And look at the different pots of money. Tax deferred, you know, tax free, taxable, and maybe if you have some sort of insurance annuities uh, or something. And then see the where you're holding things. Are you holding bonds in a Roth, in stock, in a tax deferred account? Well, we need to talk about switching that. We need to talk about getting your stock over to your Roth account where because it's tax-free growth. And we need to talk about getting the bonds over to your tax deferred account where you eventually you'll have to take the money out and pay ordinary income taxes. So we talk about asset location and why that's important. And then we look at your asset allocation between stocks and bonds. What's the big picture? What do, where do you where do you want to be? Where should you be? And there it's two sides of the coin. There's a technical side, which is, well, where do you kind of need to be in order to get to where you want to go as far as a rate of return? But the other side of that is behavioral, which is, well, if we do what you need to do to get you where you want to go, are you going to get there with that allocation if you capitulate and jump out of a bear market? And the answer is no, <laughs> you're not going to get there. So it's the wrong asset allocations, even though technically you might need 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20, whatever it is to maybe get the rate of return you're looking for to get to where you need to go. Behaviorally, if you're not going to hold on to that asset allocation through all market conditions, you're going to capitulate in a bear market. Well, you're definitely not going to get there. So we need to make an adjustment along the way. You know, maybe you need to save more. Maybe you need to uh, work longer. 
Uh, maybe you need to cut down on the amount of spending that you have. I mean, something, something has to give in this, in this formula. So this is what, uh, you know, the discussion is about on asset allocation. I have to make sure that the asset allocation that we're talking about is something that you could stick with regardless. And if you can, if you're good with that, and how do I find that out? Well, what did you do in 2008, 2007? You know, what did you do? How do you feel about the market being down 10% or 20%, whatever it happens to be down right now? Where, where are you? If you're giving me indications that you're nervous and that you're going to do something really not good that's going to hurt you, that you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, then we start talking about maybe you shouldn't have such a high allocation to equity. Everybody's brave in a bull market. Everybody likes to talk brave when they're talking to their advisor. Oh, yeah, I can handle that. Yes, doctor, I'm feeling fine. I don't have any aches and pains. And you go home and, you know, suffer a massive heart attack. So uh, my point is that you got to get underneath it all. You got to get underneath it all. And you got to really listen for the indicators that say hey, the asset allocation may not be right. But if the asset allocation is right, then you say, okay, how are we going to allocate across accounts? What do you have now in your 401k? Where's your Roth located? Is it a Roth 401k where you might be limited to investment options? Or maybe worse, the Roth 401k has the same asset allocation as the traditional 401k. So if you're trying to do a balanced fund in your traditional 401k, you get stuck with a balanced fund in your Roth 401k, which is unfortunate because you can't split it apart, but it's something that we have to deal with. And then there's your taxable portfolio. And you gotta be really simple in the taxable portfolio. And we talk about uh, tax, tax advantage investing over there, tax loss harvesting opportunities, things like that. But we wanna be very, very simple over there in the taxable portfolios. And then we get into the individual investments across each account. And we put the plan together. Getting back to my original thing, that's what I do. And I do it one time. I charge a one-time flat fee for that. And I'm done. I send it to you in a, you know, a letter, three, four, five page letter, whatever it takes. You pay me with a credit card and I'm done. I may never speak with you again. Uh, it's now up to you to implement that or to put it, you know, with all the other stuff that you're gathering uh, and, uh, and implement some sort of a plan. If they come back to me later on, a year or two or three down the road, fine. I just charge an hourly fee to help update uh, whatever it is that need to be updated. And I have my, my original records that I'll go over. So that's all I do now. That's it. That, that, that's my whole thing. And, uh, and I'm not managing money and I don't sell products. And I just say, look, uh, based on my experience, not only in the, the investments and the, you know, what's available in the asset allocation, but also behavior We're working with a lot of people over the years and how people think and, you know, what are you really going to do as opposed to what you say you're going to do? A lot of people have a discussion about their children. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about, look, you have all this money. You're never going to spend it. You know, you're never going to spend it. And you're going to get social security, or maybe you're already getting it. And so your income is higher than what you're even spending now. And so who's this money for? It's for your children. So if you were going to advise your children on what the asset allocation should be, would you have a 40% equity allocation? They'd say, oh, no, no, they should probably be 70 or 80. I said, great, then why aren't you 70 or 80? Because this money is going to go to them. And you know, that kind of, you know, changes. Oh, yeah, you know, you think about it that way. And yeah, you know, you're right. Um, I also do a lot of what's called reverse glide path. This is something that Michael Kitsis and Wade Fow uh, sort of coined the term where, okay, you might start out at 50% stocks, 50% bonds when you're retired, but you never do a rebalancing after that. You never do a rebalancing. You just let the equity market go. You never rebalance. It actually works out better. It matches liabilities up with assets even better because you might end, you might die with you might die with 80% uh, uh, equity and 20% fixed income, but that's fine because it was a benefit of your children to be that way. So, I mean, we talk about all these different concepts, but this is all strategy. This is strategy. The philosophy is the same for everybody. We're going to use low cost index funds. We're going to be tax efficient. We're going to be allocated based on your needs. 
I mean, so the philosophy is the same for everybody, but the individual strategy that you're going to run for each client, is completely different client by client. I, can't, I just can't emphasize enough how unique each individual is. It's as, it's as unique as what we all look like and, and what our career is. It's that unique. If that, that's, you take those signatures and you, and you have to do the same thing for the investment portfolio. And that, this is where the art of, of it all comes in. Although I will tell you, I have had many clients who have done this on their own just by reading the books and reading the Boglehead site and reading other things, listening to podcasts, they have done this all on their own. And all I'm doing is validating everything they did. And it's really eye-watering to me because it's just, they've just done such a fantastic job at this. They get it. They get it. They do a great job doing it. And all they're looking for is some sort of validation that they're not missing anything. And a lot of them are just, again, they, they could easily get into Portfolio Beautiful Magazine. And these are individual do-it-yourself investors. So those people, those advisors out there that are saying, oh, you know, clients, they don't understand any of this stuff. I mean, that's nonsense. Of course they do. Yeah, I've thought, and what you described in that answer is, and I skipped this question, but you got to it, thankfully, is what you call the IPS in the book. Yeah. I think it, yeah, and that's really, and I said, I'm assuming this is the most important thing you do. And, and basically what you're telling me is, yeah, that's... Yeah, you come up with the plan and the, you know, the plan is an investment policy statement. It's getting a formal thing. And some clients come to me and they have an investment policy statement, but it's just a written plan. You know, what's, what's the plan? What, what am I trying to do? What should the portfolio look like? It's just a, a, a simple plan that you could, you're able to do it in maybe two or three pages and uh, just, it, it doesn't take much. And uh, uh, that's what people are need. That's what they need. And then they can go and they can manage their portfolio uh, with confidence uh, going forward. Yeah. I really enjoyed your interview with Eduardo Rapetto on your Boglehead podcast. And as an introduction to just a brief discussion on factors, can you tell the story that you referred to in that interview? Because it was two people that have known each other a long time, where it sounds like over a decade ago, you had your investment advisory business. You knew what you were looking for in a product, which mm -hmm. was something that they did in an ETF wrapper and you were going to them proactively and saying, Hey, would you guys do this? What was it just the small cap product or was it something else? When I started my investment advisory company in 1999, I started using DFA funds, but I realized also at that time, if you recall that I had been using uh, spiders and middies in my brokerage business. And so the ETF I was very familiar with and I was familiar with the benefits of it. And, uh, I was using ETFs in my business because I was trading the accounts at Schwab and it was just a whole lot easier to trade ETFs than it was mutual funds. Cause you had, you could, you could, you knew if you were going to do a rebalancing or you, you could do the trade, you could do it during the day. You knew exactly what you got. It was, it was very simple. It was executed right then. You knew how much money you had allocated. You didn't have to wait till the next day, which is what you have to do with mutual funds. And uh, it was because you have to wait till the NAV at the end of the day. So ETFs for an advisor were like, this is great. This is heaven. Um, Vanguard came out with their Vipers products, which they dropped the word Vipers and they just went to ETFs. Um, you know, State Street had come out with their ETFs, a whole assortment. So I was using almost all ETFs with the exception of the DFA funds. The DFA funds were mutual funds. They were clumsy when you try to include them in an ETF portfolio. They were not tax efficient. They would spin off a lot of capital gains. I mean, it was just, wow. I mean, you guys over here at DFA, and I, I wrote an article, uh, time for DFA to ETF. I wrote that article, I think it was in 2001. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I caught a little crap from D DFA on that because at that time they were beholden to the advisors who wanted the exclusivity of a mutual fund where you have to go to DFA through us, the advisor, and you have to pay the gatekeeper advisor fee to get the DFA uh, and the mystique of DFA and all of that. And, and DFA, this was their marketing and this was where they were, they were bringing in all the assets. They didn't want to bite bite the dog that feeds them or whatever you, whatever, whatever that phrase is, yeah. bite the yeah. hand that feeds them, right? I'm sorry. Anyway, um, so they, uh, they were not for it at all. And I constantly was on DFA for 20 years, just about. Uh, and I was in Eduardo's office and I get, I don't know how many years ago that was. He said it was about 10. I think it was more like seven or something in his office saying, Eduardo, D ETF, ETF, ETF. I even gave him the name of an attorney who uh, was the attorney who helped create the spiders. And I said, talk to this person and, you know, launch ETFs. I mean, come on. They couldn't. There were, there were things that were going on in there. And uh, I don't know the, the whole backstory on it, but they were, you know, still beholden to advisors. And anyway, um, finally, uh, I think after Eduardo left and uh, then he went to, um, oh, he went to do uh, Avantis that, uh, you know, he launched ETF. They, they finally, uh, finally, I think that finally DFA said, okay, it's time to sever ourselves away from just this advisor only community and, and start to offer DFA funds directly, ETFs, excuse me, offer DFA ETFs directly to the public, which is my opinion. They would have owned that market. They would have owned the factor ETF market had they done it 20 years ago, but they, but they didn't. Now, hey, it's a business decision. Well, and when you describe the history, uh, your own history and how it mirrored the history of the industry, you can see the industry going, kicking and screaming in the direction of providing <laughs> slightly better products for the client, but always through a filter of how do we make more money doing it, which is never, you know. Well, the distribution channel. In other words, are we, going to, are we going to uh, cannibalize a more profitable distribution channel by going with ETFs? And the answer is, yes, you are. You're going to cannibalize a more profitable distribution system that happens to be more profitable at this moment. But if you're looking down the road, 10 or 15 years, the pro away. it's going away. That profitability is shrinking. That profit margin will be shrinking and you need to have something else that's going to fill it. Yes, it'll be less profitable, but nonetheless, I mean, you need to survive as a company and you'll get more assets by having this multiple channel distribution stream. So you still have the 401k market, right? 403b, 401k, 457 plan market that has a 401a market that uses mutual funds for the most part. And so that market is still there. And then you have the ETF market and you need products for both as a yeah. fund provider. Which they have now. And I loved Eduardo's approach to thinking about factors. Now we're talking about all of them, you know, value, momentum, yeah. um, quality and whatnot, that he said, I can observe the factor, but does it make sense to me? Like he said, value and quality factors intuitively. Yeah, I get that. Momentum factor, I can observe it, but I just don't get it. I, I love that approach to figuring out where he was going to go. But for you, do you, are you ever tempted to go beyond the size factor? Uh, and add one more, add one more fund from that pool of factors. I can't remember your term about the core and the periphery funds. Uh, is there any? And in fact, you mentioned in the podcast that you you again were looking for a particular fund in the yeah. ETF structure. I think it was international value, small cap value. Internet, inter, no, it was global small cap value. Global small. Here's why. So. 
look, I, I'm not going to be able to pick uh, whether a value factor is the way to go or which particular value factor. Value is in the eyes of the beholder, which means it's everybody has their own definition of what a value stock is. Unlike size, for example, and you, we all kind of know what small cap is. You know, it's, it's large cap, mid cap, small cap. All the index providers may cut, make their cuts at different levels, but, you know, pretty much they're all small cap or all small cap, no matter what index provider you're using. That's not true with value. Value, some people use book to market, book, you know, price to earnings. Uh, they use um, return on equity, uh, enterprise value. I mean, there's just a slew of different uh, ways of which you can determine this company is a value stock, cash flow, whatever, the fundamentals, uh, or is this a, um, a, a growth stock? And again, as what Eduardo said, that's, that's those are balance sheet items as opposed to income statement items, which are... Um, is, is this a quality company, quality growth company or not? Uh, but anyway, so the balance sheet items. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to say I've done analysis on all these different value factors. And, you know, sometimes price to book is the place to be. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, a low price to book is the place to be. Sometimes low price to earnings is the place to be. Sometimes low price to cash flow is the place to be. I mean, uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy did a book uh, called uh, What Works on Wall Street. And in there, he had all these different factors. And, and you could look at decade by decade by decade how each one of these did. And it's just all over the place. I mean, you can't right. determine today which one of these value factors is going to outperform and which one's not, or, or whether any of them are going to outperform. So I, I like to go with what's called a multi-factor model, which would be, I, I, I'd, I'd like a company that does price to book and maybe price to cash flow and maybe enterprise value, you know, I mean, some kind of multi-value way of doing it makes sense to me. And then there's a profitability factor on top of that, which again, going to the income statement is, you know, uh, is there a consistency of profitability in the company? And uh, that, again, different ways of figuring that out as well. And so a combination of a value factor and a profitability factor. And then there's the momentum factor, which is what said, it's all behavioral. I mean, people jump on the bandwagon. Why did Amazon uh, stock go up 6% when they announced a 20 for one stock split? I mean, the value of the company didn't go up 6%, you know? I mean, no, nothing no company- No economic did, reason. No economic reason, zero. Yeah. But they announced a 20 for one stock split and the stock goes up 6%. It makes, makes no sense, except from a behavioral standpoint, you know? So uh, uh, momentum is probably in much the same way. It's, uh, you know, you jump on the bandwagon because everybody else is buying. It's kind of the Robin Hood thing if you will. Yeah. So, um, you know, you could maybe get a little bit of benefit, but you certainly don't want to jump on a bandwagon when the stock is falling. It's like we talked about catching a falling knife. I mean, you don't want to try to catch a falling knife. I mean, you just let the thing fall, stick into the ground and fester for a while and start moving back up before you start investing. Let other people figure out that's a good deal first, and then you jump on the bandwagon. So combination of all these things, which is what makes up a good, in my opinion, factor fund. Uh, small cap, debatable as as we talked about in that podcast whether or not it actually does anything uh to me it, it's so easy to invest in small cap stocks now through many 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 different index funds that whatever small cap premium there was probably doesn't exist anymore if, if, if there as a water said even if there was one maybe there wasn't one but we do know that these factors like value are strongest in the small cap stock space therefore if you're going to do factor investing you might as well just leave off the large cap 
stuff and just go right, right to the small cap stuff. Right. So where do you do? Well, we know also that these factors have worked in the past, and I'm not going to say they're going to work in the future, but they had worked in the past, the data set shows, in the U.S. and in internationally. So, you know, if you're going to have a total U.S. stock index fund and a total international fund, and you want to add one element of something that you think might give you a higher return because there's more risk there. And I, I do believe that the reason you would get a higher return is because something in there in these factor funds, these small cap value factor funds is more risky. It, it's more risky to do it. And he called it a discount rate is higher and so forth. But that just to me is a signal that there's more risk there. So there's more risk. there. So you expect to get a higher rate of, rate of return. That's the idea. And you package these things all together. But right now, you can package them all together in a U.S. small cap value index type fund. And you can put them all together in a U.S. international small cap value index type fund. I say type fund because Avantis doesn't run index funds and neither does a DFA, but quantitative, you know, selection using a lot of stock. But I asked him, well, look, I'm a sim simple guy. I mean, please, I, I want total U.S. stock index, total international index. Can you just give me one global small cap value fund where I don't have to buy a yeah, <laughs> slice and dice? I mean, you know, right now, personally, I'm just using a U.S. small cap value. I don't mean bother with international small cap value, but um I'd like to see, you know, the potential for a small cap value, global small cap value. And where would this go, by the way? An asset location. Where would it go? It would go in your Roth account. That's where it would go. Because you're trying to outperform the market and, and you want to put things in the Roth. Whatever you decide you're going to buy something that you think is going to outperform, whether it's a factor fund or an industry fund or an individual stock or whatever it is. Uh, if you think it's going to outperform and you're buying it because you want it to outperform, on a risk-adjusted basis or not, just nominally you're going to outperform the market, you want to put it in your Roth account. Because if you're actually right and it does outperform and you decide you want to sell it either now or in the future when you get old and gray and you don't really want to have these factors in your portfolio anymore, you just want to go to you know default to total market, you can sell it and not have any taxes. So that's where you would put it. And so uh, you know, a small cap, a global small cap value fund in a Roth makes sense. And this is why I was pushing him. Sorry that answer was so long. No, not at all. Because I, I'm in the same camp with a slightly different product, which is I've been looking for the quality plus value factors fund. Uh, it, it looks like in some of these cases, one factor works better combined with another, even better, even if it works well on its own. And if you think about quality plus value, that's what Warren Buffett has done. That's what Joel Greenblatt's magic formula is all about. And it it doesn't exist, you know. So for me, I'm with you. Three fund portfolio, small cap value. If I was going to do one more, just one factor fund to add an opportunity to do better in the portfolio overall, it would be that fund. Well, no, the the, the, the okay. I'm sorry. Um, so like the Avantis small cap value fund, uh, the DFA small cap value. The Avantis fund is AVUV. The, the DFA uh, targeted. Uh, value is DFAT. Uh, these funds are, are a multi-factor fund. They're using value. They're using size, small cap. They're using uh, quality and they're using momentum. So they're using those four okay. factors packaged into okay. one fund and they're doing it at a very low cost. The Avantis small cap value is I think 0.25 and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's 0.23, but it, it's really low cost. And it's in, a, it's in an ETF. So it's, uh, it, the cost structure itself is, uh, is, is low. 
And so this is what I, oh, now, unfortunately, a lot of people who are at Vanguard, they choose the Vanguard small cap value. I, you sometimes, okay, if I had a choice, I wouldn't use that, but sometimes you have no choice. Meaning that if you wanna have this exposure and you're at Vanguard in a 401k plan, and your Roth account is at Vanguard, you only can use Vanguard funds and you can't use other funds. So if you wanted to do a small cap value exposure in your Roth 401k and it happens to be at Vanguard, you, the only fund that's available to you is the Vanguard small cap value fund, which is neither very small cap nor very valuey. But you know, it's made for billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. So. It, it gives you some flavor of it, but it's only about halfway between say the market and what an Avantis would be or what a DFA uh, targeted small value uh, fund would be, uh, F -A DFAT. Um, there's another one that I personally own, it's called RZV, it's the Invesco uh, S&P 600 pure small cap value, which really was the very first deep, deep, deep small cap value ETF out there. I personally own it. I do like the Advantage Fund and I do like the DFA Fund, but they came much later. Following up on factors with one more question, because I think it's related. I think I know where you're going to come out on this, but I would just love your thoughts. The book was written in 2010, the one I was talking about, all about asset allocation. You go into the alternatives world, uh, hedge funds and, and the commodities and real estate were considered alternatives. Since that time, this world of liquid alternatives cropped up and there's much hand wringing in the what I'll call the 60-40 world, which I totally understand that with all time high stock valuations and bond valuations, that mix is not going to provide the historical earns, uh, returns that it once did. And so you have to do something extra. And they're suggesting they, one book is suggesting looking at these liquid alternatives, which is, it could be anything. I mean, I ran a hedge fund. These liquid alternatives look like a hedge fund in a 40 act wrapper, still expensive, still opaque, difficult to analyze, but some of them are factor based, you know, go long the cheapest decile of stocks and short the most expensive, which hasn't worked, unfortunately, in 10 years, but may again. So uh, do, I, I'm guessing, do you ever come across clients? And again, sorry for that word, but I under, we understand what you mean. People that come to you for a consultation, do they ask you about these liquid alternatives? And, and what do you tell them? No, they generally don't ask. Um, it, they're beyond that. I, I, and I don't want to say officially, but they're beyond the complexity of, of okay. something like that. They, they've done it. A lot of them have already done it. They, they realize it's not something they need in a portfolio, uh, that all they need to do is get the returns of the markets, and they're good. Uh, they don't need the illiquidity of some of these alternatives. They don't need the complexity of some of these alternatives. They don't want the complexity of it. There's question in whether or not, you know, I mean, I've, I've again, 35 years in the business, I've seen all kinds of alternatives and they, boy, do they change. It used to be when I first came in the business, uh, oil and gas drilling credits or something. And then I went to real estate credits. And these are all these alternative things that you could buy. And they all blew up. They all went away. I mean, and there was onto something else and then something else and then something else and something else. I mean, it, there's always alternatives. But in the end, it gets it back to John Bogle, even Warren Buffett, if you just do a total stock index fund and maybe a total international index fund and a bond fund, a couple of different bond funds, you're going to outperform 90 some odd percent of all investors out there. You're going to achieve your financial objectives 
if they can be achieved by the, you know, by the returns of the markets, you don't need all these other things. You don't need that complexity. The fees on that stuff are higher, quite, quite a bit higher. The tax efficiency is lower. Look, somebody comes to me and they have some of this stuff. We talk about it, but generally they're already beyond it and they're looking to get out of it and, uh, you know, go on to something more simpler than that. Simplicity is a virtue. Complexity is a cost. The more stuff you throw in a portfolio, the more complicated it is, the more costly it is. In the end, you don't benefit. Somebody benefits from it, but it isn't you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, perfect. So we've talked about the 60-40 mix and where we're at with asset prices. What do you counsel retirees on a safe withdrawal rate? And has that changed at all? Safe withdrawal rate for people in the accumulation phase. Okay, this is people who are in their 30s. Let's start out with the four phases of investors. So the first phase is what I call the uh, uh, early savers or new savers. These are people who you know get out of college or get out of school. They start working. They have a 401k. They start saving, putting some money away. They're the early savers, the new savers. Okay, then once they kind of get into their early 30s, they have maybe bought a home, maybe they're establishing a family, their careers are becoming more established, they know what they want to do, they might be changing careers, if they're physicians, they're finishing school, they're finishing residency, they're starting their uh, clinical, whatever they're doing, uh, academia, and, um, you know, the, the career is set out in front of them, their family kind of gets set out in front of them, they know, they know what, this is now the second phase, which is called midlife accumulator. Now, you may not be midlife, but you're accumulating, you're starting to accumulate assets, and um, this is where asset location and putting money away and being tax efficient. Then there's the next phase. The next phase is uh, pre-retirement and retirement. So it's the transition, retirement transition phase. Kids are done with college or, you know, are in college or in your mid fifties. Now the next phase of life you're looking at is when are we going to retire? How much are we going to, you know, how much you know, do we have enough to retire? What is our distribution going to look like in retirement? And then, uh, and then you ultimately do retire and you start decumulating. And then the last phase, I call it just for the lack of a, something else to come up with is the golden years. I mean, it's in your later years where, you know, past the age of 72, you're getting your required minimum distributions. You're getting your social security, you're on Medicare, pretty much everything is, is standardized at that point going forward. And, you know, you might be selling one of your homes or vacation home or something. And, you know, the, maybe assisted living's coming up or all that. And, you know, long-term care or whatever. I mean, that, that's, you know, the golden years. So where does the uh, safe withdrawal rate come into that? It comes in and during the accumulation phase where you're starting to accumulate money and you're just beginning to think about what am I doing it for? Where am I trying to go? How, you know how much you can save every year. You know how much, you know where you can save. So you know these things. You've got your careers, You've got your income streams. Uh, if you're married, your spouse possibly has a career, the income stream, and you know that you're, you're on a set path. You know, it's, it, it is, you have visibility in front of you over the next 10 or 15. But now what you want to know is where am I going to be at say six, 60, age 60? And it tends to be people I talk with somewhere between 55 and 60. They want to know where they're going to be 
at 55. They now know where they're going to be, let's say, at age 60. They don't want to go out as far as 65 and forget about 70. They don't want to go out that far. They just want to know, can I retire at 55? Can I retire at 60? That's sort of like the range that I see people in their 30s are looking at as the first first cut, if you will, for when they might be able to retire. Well, we need to have some sort of an expectation of return on their portfolio. So they have what they've got now, they've got what they're putting in, they've got an expectation of return on the portfolio, and then they've got the withdrawal rate when they are 60, sustainable withdrawal rate, and then you have to add in when they're 70, you know, social security benefit as well. So what do I use? That withdrawal rate, I use a 3%. Is a 3% withdrawal rate. If you're able to make it at a 3% withdrawal rate and pay all your bills uh, when you're 60 years old, you're pretty much going to be okay. Right? You're not going to run out of money. You're not going to run. You're out not going to run out of money. Now, because you're going to get you're going to get Social Security later on, so it's just going to take you from 60 to 70 is all it's going to do. And like everything else we've talked about, you covered that in this book on the chapter on on life cycles. Uh, I can't recommend this book enough. We already talked about your. Boglehead podcast. Reference again the the next book you have coming out and where else people can hear you or see you. Oh, okay. So you can you can find me on Bogleheads on Investing podcast that I do every month with a special guest. We're also starting a Twitter Spaces uh, this, this Wednesday. We're going to be doing uh, myself and John Luskin, who's a financial planner out in California. I'm a financial analyst. He's a financial planner, so it works out well. We're doing a Boglehead Twitter Spaces uh, once a week for maybe 45 minutes, and that'll be on a Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, right after the market closes. And uh, you can find me at rickferry.com. That's my website. And my other website for the Core 4 portfolio is core-4.com. We also have the Bogleheads Conference coming up in October, which you're going to hear more about. And that's where we're all going to get together and do a uh, talk about all this stuff for for three days. It'll be in a suburb of Chicago. Hasn't yet been announced. We have the contract and everything set, but uh, it'll be a great event. It'll be about 500 people, uh, 500 seats available at the conference. So if you're into this kind of stuff and you want to go out there, it's for individual investors and advisors. A lot of advisors go. And um, so we're just doing a whole lot of stuff. And it's just all to educate people. Uh, the name of my book that I'm writing right now is called A Few Good Funds, The Genius of Simple Investing. And that will be out hopefully by the end of uh, this year. And that is exactly what it is. It's just taking the All About Asset Allocation book and sort of boiling it down to doing that, but with a few good funds rather than say 10 or 12 funds. So it's just simplifying uh, that whole concept. Right. Well, I look forward to that. And Rick, I can't thank you enough for doing this and taking time. Well, thank you. Your day. Appreciate it very much. How are things down in the ranch? It's finally spring. (laughs) 